Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan Esposito. Joan comes back Monday. It is her show. I'm just taking... Taking a couple of days to keep her chair warm for her, and then she will return. I love listening to her. And I, it really, you know what? I just have to say, big old plugola here for Joan Esposito. Sometimes in the afternoon, you look around your radio dial and you think, what? What's out there? I'm never disappointed in Joan. And clearly you're not either because you're even willing to put up with me until she gets back. Lady B is at the controls and we have such a show for you today. It's, um, it's got a little of everything. Um, we're going to meet the playwright behind the story, the immigration story that's up at Steppenwolf right now. Vichat Chung will be joining us, and he will talk about life surrounded by these amazing survival women, who, surviving women who survived um, the Cambodian, the slaughter, basically, um, and, and how being raised in an immigrant family formed him as an artist. So we'll talk to him. We're going to hear about the museum employees when you take your kids Around maybe this holiday season, you got some folks coming in. You want to show off our great cultural treasures in Chicago. Are those people really happy, those people dusting off the dinosaur eggs? If they're so happy, why do you suppose they're unionizing? We'll find out. Also, we're going to have Boots on the Ground report from volunteering in Atlanta for Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock. We'll hear from somebody who's doing that work. Uh, will Chicago follow the path of New York concerning people living on the streets? And uh, one of the things I'm most looking forward to, my girlfriend, CJ, gossip columnist and Minnesotan via the South. But she she has always got the backstory on Mike Lindell, the my pillow poo who now thinks that he's going to be running the Republican Party. So all of that waiting for you. All of it. And so much just going on around the city. Um, I don't know if you saw the big story because that there's so much going on in the mayoral race. But did you see that Mayor Lori Lightfoot, according to a Sun-Times investigation, took 53K from a lobbyist, even though there's a rule that says you can't take money from lobbyists. Former Mayor Rahm Emanuel set that rule up way back in 2011. So 10 years that rule has been on the books. You you would think, I mean, when she came to the mayor's office, she was sort of a novice, although a trained and competent lawyer. D- didn't anybody in her office point out, hey, you can't do that. I'd also like to point out, and the guy's a developer, holds liquor, liquor licenses. Um, I've seen this writ small in our uh, ward, actually. Uh, our, our alderman, who shall be nameless because of what I'm about to say, uh, our, our alderman had the most, in my opinion, bizarro policy about taking money from lobbyists specifically developers. I loved this. He he was very proud of his policy. I don't take money from developers within six months of the election. 
What? Excuse me? What? <laughs> that just like, I can't believe people just didn't burst out laughing every time he said it. I mean, because I, I don't know about you, but when you own a house and you live in it and it becomes more valuable, you know, someday you're going to be able to cash out, right? That, that's part of your calculation, what it's going to be worth someday. All those little beanie babies you saved, you thought, ah, someday these are going to be worth money. You were wrong, but. So why couldn't an alder person think, okay, well, um, I'm not going to take this money within six months of the election, but I can take it now and the payoff will come altogether. I can hear you someday. That's right. Someday your payout will come. So um, I, I have to tell you more to that story. There was, um, there was a developer who wanted to develop a small building on a commercial strip into what you're seeing go up all over Chicagoland. These giant three flat, four flat, build it to the back of the lot. I think some of these are going up in the suburbs, too. Correct me if I'm wrong, if you're seeing some of these where you are, where it's like open space. Who needs a garden? Who needs a garden? Uh, Daylight next door? Nope, no daylight for you. We're just going to build this puppy as high as we can, as big as we can. And by the way, if you live behind it, good luck to you, because we're going to make it look like the Wicked Witch of the West Castle. And you'll have to look at that. So, again, I won't mention the name of this alder person, but no, no money within six months of the of the election. And I'm not sure whether he he had a dollar ban. But interestingly enough, just like Mayor Lori Lightfoot, according to this Sometimes story. Money came mysteriously from a bunch of different addresses that all were connected to the same company. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out, by the way. It took my teenage kid. It's like, oh, look at this. Here's another donation because they had to list they list the donations. Here's a donation from a developer in Northbrook. And here's another one. And look, they're all in the same office building. And here's another one. From the suite next door in the same office building. And and what would be the incentive from a bunch of developers in a suburb far, far away to want to donate to an older person in Chicago? What what would possibly why would they possibly care? Their kids aren't going to school in the neighborhood, that's for sure. It's because they want to build another Wicked Witch of the West's castle. Or in the case of this fifty-three K. That the mayor will now be returning. We want to be fair about this. She's returning it. She is returning it because, I don't know, goodness of her heart? Or maybe the fact that it was publicized? Not sure about that. Why Why would you? Somebody gives you $53,000. Why? Why would you return that? More than 53. According to the Sun-Times account, Mayor Lightfoot has accepted more than 53K in 39 individual campaign contributions for 14 companies all owned. Ah, quel miracle. Amazing. By the same guy. Why? 
I don't know whether he, the guy who gave this money, lives in the city or not. Don't know. But for sure, he's got some business interests in the city. So, you know, there it's it's always amazing. I saw the same thing with um, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, where he's now claiming that he gave money to Republicans as well as Democrats. I wonder why. You can just take the phrase goodness of your heart and just rip that up to shreds because that ain't happening. That's not why. Nope, not the goodness of your heart. For sure not. Your thoughts? What can we do to keep these donations far, far away? And do we need to count on our media, our press? Is there some other way we could police it a little better? Maybe make the punishment a little bigger? I don't know. Your ideas are welcome. 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Turi Ryder. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Sitting in for Joan, Turi Ryder. That's spelled T-U-R-I, Ryder, R-Y-D-E-R. If you want to find me when I am not behind this very WCPT microphone, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. I'm there and happy to hear from you. But I'd love to hear from you right now if you have some idea of what we could do post-dark money rulings to make sure that this slicing and dicing of political contributions by lobbyists, by people with business with the city. By This, by the way, was a fine slice if you missed the Sun-Times investigative piece. This 53-plus K donated to Mayor Lightfoot's campaign. This is how they sliced it finally. Um, it wasn't actually the lobbyist. It was companies owned by the lobbyist. And they phoned up former Mayor Emanuel... And they asked him, did this sound like a violation of his ethics rule? And they didn't tell him who had made this contribution because the guy who had made the contribution uh, was someone that he appointed to a high position in the city when he was mayor. Had he used the great excuse of all time, I'm, I'm in Japan. I'm the ambassador to Japan. But it, it sounds like it violates the spirit of the rule to me. Okay, so now that it's public, not only will the mayor be returning the contribution, it has been requested. Um, This lovely quote from uh, Steve Berlin, the executive director of the Chicago Board of Ethics, said Emanuel's executive order doesn't say whether it covers contributions from companies owned by a lobbyist and that the ethics board has never been asked to rule on that issue. This kind of stuff, this just keeps happening. I guess there's nothing we can do about it as far as, you know, stealth packs. But here in Chicago, where we're, you know, we have a history of troubled ethics and it's not just the city. I mean, we've we've seen this kind of stuff in suburban counties, too. I have a friend in Arlington Heights who has pointed out some things that have come up. So if that's if that's what we're looking at, what can we do about it? Let's go to Ron. 
who wants to talk about Chicago politicians. Lady B, can I safely do this? I'm going to try again to push a button without knocking the entire console across the room. Can I do it? I'm going to try it. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. All right, Lady B will save me. Hey, Ron, welcome. You're on WCPT. Yes, uh... Would it be possible to have an uh, owner man of politicians to sign a document once a year? I received donations from this person or that corporation. Have him sign it you know, like a tax return? Well, they do have to report political donations. They do. Okay. And and but it's as I pointed out a moment ago, it can be very sneaky. What the, a lot of these developers do is they divide these. It's the same kind of thing you've heard about on the national level where you kind of gather them into a basket. So I don't know if you have a big family, but let's just say you had six people in your household and every single one of those people wrote a check to your favorite politician and you just bundled them into an envelope and sent them off. What they get to report is every individual contribution. So it doesn't look like you gave all that money. It looks like this guy gave a little and that guy gave a little Um so it it kind of masks it, but they do they do have to report it. Um, but but there's this kind of smoke and mirror thing that goes on that makes it harder to track down. But to your point, it would be interesting if um, and you are supposed to fill out a form that says what you do. But again, you know, if you had a 15 year old in your household and you you gave that 15 year old two grand and said, here, send this to my favorite politician. When your 15 year old filled out the what do you do, uh, he or she could say, student, just love the just love the guy I'm sending this money to. And the fact that you're a developer wouldn't show up on that contribution. Right. Like a third party. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, except it's not, and everybody knows it's not. I mean, there's a lot of that nudge, nudge, wink, wink stuff that goes on. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate your call. Good to talk with you. Yeah, I really, I'm. It's hard to know. Um, short of people actually sleuthing it out, I think it's probably easier to trace a Russian oligarch's yacht than it is to figure out some of these contributions, which, by the way, is my argument for why we really need an independent press. I mean, that's who's doing this work right now. Are these nonprofits or the, you know, what's left of our major papers? Uh, That's who is dedicating time and effort to digging down deep to see really where's the money. And even so, it can be if if your whole job, as we now know from watching corporations not pay taxes, if your whole job is to figure out how to keep uh, your client from having to pay taxes, if that's your full time gig and you're smart and you're good at it and maybe you have another office full of people who spend their time doing the same thing, then it's no mystery why Jeff Bezos pays so little tax. It's no mystery why Apple pays so little tax. It's um, it's a very difficult system to navigate. But we, you know, we can all do our little parts. When you see somebody who's doing something laughable, you, you should point it out and laugh at them. Politely. <laughs> Politely. Don't throw anything. 
was talking to the lady B earlier. She goes, I don't want any yelling and I don't want anything being thrown. I'm like, okay, that's fair. No yelling, nothing being thrown. Perfectly fair request. But I, I, I got in trouble at the meeting of my alder person when he publicly stated that he didn't take any money from developers within six months of the election. I'm like, it takes two years to build one of these things they want to build. Ha! I laughed right in the meeting. Ha! Everybody looked at me like I was crazy. But I think I, I'm maybe one of the things we need to do is show up at these people's events and just laugh in their faces. Really? You didn't want us to figure out? You know, everybody should show up. I'm not I'm not endorsing a particular candidate for mayor, but next time one of these stories comes down the pike, you don't even have to speak at the meeting. Just wave that article around. Just wave it around. It does cost a lot of money to run a political campaign right now. We are all if you've given any money to a politician this last election cycle, has that subsided at all? Or is 90 percent of your text input still like we need we desperately need we are begging you. We ask politely. I think every email I get right now, every third, every third email and every other text is a request for money for Georgia right now. It hasn't changed. The amount of texts that are coming in are pretty much holding steady. Everyone who was asking for money for themselves is now asking for money. I don't know why. I guess they figure you liked this politician. So if this politician asks, maybe you'll send it. I am sending. I am sending. But if you do the, if you did the math, like if every time you got one of these texts a day, you sent 10 bucks, what do you figure that'd be costing you every day? I mean, I'd be at least up to the $200 a day donation if every time I got one of those, I sent money. For sure. For sure I would. And they they will not, I don't know what they're going to do after the election, whether we win or whether we lose. And I certainly hope we win. But I'm just kind of curious now that they have my number for texting. What will be the next? What will be the next thing that they desperately want? In a moment, you're going to meet the playwright who was chosen as part of a new playwrights series. His play was selected, workshopped, and it's going up at the Steppenwolf Theater now. His story is so interesting, and I think you're going to like meeting him in just a moment. Vichat Chung will be with us. 773-763-9278 is our phone number. You might have a question for the playwright. Uh, we are WCPT Radio, where facts matter. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It's Joan Esposito's show. I am Tory Writer in for Joan. If you are a fan of Chicago's cultural scene, and I am, one of the reasons I laughed during the last gubernatorial race when Chicago was referred to as, what were we, a cesspool? Something like that. I just thought, the candidate has never been here. We have so many treasures. One of them is the Steppenwolf Theater. And opening right about now at Steppenwolf is a play called Bald Sisters. Um, it covers 
with humor and kindness and real familiarity, and you're going to find out why in a minute, two two first-generation Cambodian-American sisters and their effort to, well, I'm going to let the playwright tell you about it. Vichet Chung, am I pronouncing it correctly? I don't want to butcher your name. Yeah, it's V. Chet Chum. V like the letter V and Chet like Chet Baker. Yes. Ooh, Chet Baker. That's a good reference. And you're practically local because you studied in Indiana. And this play, which I am deeply looking forward to seeing, uh, but have read a lot about, heard a lot about, and also the Scout series that brought you to Steppenwolf. Maybe you'll talk a little bit about that. But what drew me initially was that it's a survival story with joy of the immigrant experience. Would that be an accurate description? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, my parents, all my family members are survivors of the Cambodian genocide um, back in the 70s. And, um, you know, I've always been hyper aware that they've had stories to share. And and when I sort of came into my own being a storyteller, I wanted to make sure I captured those. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I I will say, you know, I, I think that there's been a lot of curiosity and intrigue around Cambodian stories. Uh, but it usually centers around the genocide, around those four years in the 70s. And, you know, as, you know, a, a Cambodian-American myself sort of looking towards, you know, the future, I'm most interested in sort of moving beyond those years. That, those years are certainly foundational to who we are as Cambodian people. But I want to bring in the humor. I want to bring in the complexity. I want to bring in, you know, the, the thriving as Cambodian-Americans, as our community. Did your family see humor as a survival tool or did they were they conscious of how they used humor as a survival tool or was it just yeah. sort of in the in the in the air? Yeah, of course. You know, I grew up around, uh, you know, really vibrant people and people who certainly had gone through a lot, um, but would always have karaoke parties, would always have social celebrations, would have, you know, family and friends around at all times. And I, as much as, you know, the tragedy is a part of who we are as people, I was also very aware that my, my family members laughed audaciously, very loudly. Um, and so that's, you know, really integral to the way in which I tell stories. Um, and laughter is a means to survive. It's like, if you, if you, it's either you cry or you, or you laugh or you do both at the same time, which is actually really very much the mode of this story. It's, it's interesting to me that you, um, that you have brought these people to life and make us laugh about them. And yet there, there is that undercurrent and you don't neglect it. You don't make it go away. What's also interesting, I thought was the, the clash of religions, which you mentioned in one of the biographies of you that I read was also part of your history. You, you came to America, you got the, the foundational American Christianity scoop, and then you had the Buddhist scoop and somehow those two scoops were on the same cone. How did that happen in your, in your life and how do you bring it to the show? Yeah, so my, my, my family was sponsored um, by churches in Texas. And so uh, we grew up going to both uh, Theravada Buddhist Temple on Saturdays and Southern Baptist Church on Sundays. And so 
I don't know back then if I really considered them like ideas or like spaces, but now that I reflect on my upbringing, I'm, I'm hyper aware that those two places really have informed the way in which I look at the world, the expansiveness of, 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 of how we actually think about things. Um, and so, you know, I've always been intrigued by that collision of ideas because I do, I am optimistic. I do believe ultimately there's more that binds us than actually divides us. And, and so in this story, in this play of the Bald Sisters, one of the sisters is a Southern Baptist Christian and the other is a Theravada Buddhist. And so they are trying to figure out how to honor their past mother um, with their specific point of views of how, uh, how their mother should be treated in the afterlife. So this is when I read this, it was really kind of a, a of a cold bucket of water for me because my experience belonging to neither of those faiths um, is that one of them is is very uh, supersessionist. We come before any other religion. Um, our beliefs supersede any other re- beliefs. Any other beliefs, for the most part, are at best ero- erroneous and misguided and at worst sinful, evil and damnable. That's been some of my experience. And that the other uh, faith is, is more mm, open and porous and willing to be accepting of uh, different paths of spirituality. But to hear you tell it, neither one of those is exactly accurate. Could, could you explain how you got that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately, yes, those two systems of beliefs are very different in many ways. Um, and at the same time, what I'm what I'm interested in is the way in which we use those systems of, of beliefs to sort of engage with other people in the world and find meaning and dignity in our own lives. And so ultimately, they're holding on to these systems of belief to figure out how to deal with their past mother. But ultimately, what we're dealing with here are very human things. They actually have nothing to do with religion, actually. I I often say that about this play, you know, they're trying to figure out how to honor the dead, but ultimately they're trying to figure out how to witness the present, how to witness the living, how to actually be in space with another human being and offer each other the dignity that each of them deserve in some way. You could be saying that exact thing about the current political climate and the need to be honoring and respecting people who are coming from very different political spots right now. And as I was listening to you, and one of the reasons that it seems like your show would be a perfect place to go with someone whose uh, worldview is a little different, it's been hard for me to um, continue to have conversations with friends who have vast political differences. I've really worked hard at it. Um the, the current political climate that I'm getting from people who come from a different space is you need to admit you are wrong. You need to admit you are wrong. You need to admit that everything you believe is wrong or we can't talk. And I don't I don't know what to do with that. And it seems like your play may address that a little bit. Have you given thought to how much of this religious conversation could also be transposed into a political conversation? For sure, for sure. I mean, I think ultimately for me, I I personally politically do have deal breakers. You know, I, I do function from a space of, you know, 
I find it hard to love someone if they don't offer me justice in some capacity. That is something I, I think about every day. And at the same time, I have to remind myself as a human, as a storyteller, that I have to remain in the soft place, in the curious place of, of being able to see the person at the center of all the noise, all the stuff that we, all the armor that we've, we've padded ourselves with in some way to survive, right? And so I think in this play, I mean, I do like working in forms that feel familiar. I, I'm working within a family that you could recognize at, around a table, mm-hmm. but ultimately they are vessels for these very specific point of views. And and I think, you know, people can, can we welcome everyone into that space, not to antagonize anyone, but actually to, to make you sit around the table and to, to do it in a way that feels both like vibrant and sometimes messy, but also um, a place of great compassion, actually. I think compassion is probably the, the word that we keep coming back to, to, to try and make that happen. Um, having lived for many years in California, which has a, a big community from Cambodia, I've, I've heard from people that I know better or have met some, and there is this kind of idea that you're going to grow up and, and be super American and super super successful and like my own ethnic background there there are certain expectations as far as careers education um did you run into any of that and this is my way of hinting around to say what your family say when you told them you were going to write plays for a living yeah i mean look i grew up in a very asian cambodian household and i think ultimately my parents were very concerned about making sure that we had the same opportunities as uh, as my peers and so and also because you know we grew up poor and as in- refugee immigrants the idea of doing art um as a profession is novel and feels like a privilege in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um and and at the same time what i'm also aware of is during the cambodian genocide a whole generation of artists cambodian artists were killed first intellectuals were killed first and so you know when i honed in on this thing that i loved and i understood myself to be a storyteller you know there was no looking back and and though i had many difficult conversations with my parents i i think i could always um understand that it was coming from a place of great care they wanted to make sure i was fine that you were gonna be all right so did you wave that flag like mom dad i'm gonna resurrect some of this art that was lost i'm gonna resurrect some of the storytellers who were who were murdered this is what i can do did that conversation actually happen you know i think that uh, not that specific conversation, but I think that when my parents first came to my very first show that I had professionally um, had produced um, in in Massachusetts a, a while ago, and they saw the story, and I myself as a performer was in the story as well in the production. Yeah. Um, they, I, I think they witnessed they witnessed me, you know, and I think they understood what I was trying to do, that this wasn't just something, um, you know, this was something that was in service of, of their legacy. And it's certainly my own sort of looking, bringing forward the Cambodian narratives. Um, and so, yeah, they were really delighted, moved. And, um, I think that ever since that moment, I think that they've really been with me along this journey. That was when they gave up the fantasy that you were going to be a surgeon. Are you telling me? Is that, 
Yeah, no way, no way. <laughs> I mean, no, I think there was a hope, and but I, I think that they, they knew I, I was too hooked. Oh, I, good. That's something I had to do. I, I have more questions about what kind of arts you were exposed to as a kid, and I especially want to talk with you a little bit about Steppenwolf's program to find um, underrepresented um, groups and artists and talent and actors. And so if you can hang on a bit, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. You're talking to, listening to V. Chet Chung. He is the playwright uh, who created the show that's going up at Steppenwolf Theater now, uh, Bald Sisters. Great title. Um, you will hear maybe a little bit about how that came to be named and more from him in just a moment on WCPT. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. To be more accurate, it is the Joan Esposito Show. I am Tory Ryder in for Joan. She returns Monday, and you will find her in this very same space at this very same time. We're speaking with Vichad Chan. He is the playwright behind the show that's opening at Steppenwolf called Bald Sisters. Um, and Vichad, thank you so much for holding on with me and I. I would love to hear from you about the program that bought you that brought your show to the stage at Steppenwolf and how it's been for you to find appropriate actors and, and, and all that goes into creating this performance. Yeah, you know, I, I have to contribute my presence being here um, at Steppenwolf much to uh, new play director Polly Hubbard. Um, you know, she created the Scout series at Steppenwolf with the very intentional um, uh, desire to sort of diversify, uh, make this space bigger, um, make this space more expansive um, for different uh, storytellers. Tell us about uh, like the Scout, the Scout series. People may not know what it is. Yeah, yeah. So Scout Series is is in support of new playwrights um, and specifically playwrights of color. Um, you know, Steppenwolf has an amazing history, and it's also a very much a historically white institution. Um, and so uh, they created this initiative to really bring in uh, playwrights of color to do a workshop for about a week. Um, and then, you know, introduce Steppenwolf audiences to, to new voices. And so I was a part of that series um, back in 2019, actually. Um, and thereafter, they, you know, they they offered me uh, that they wanted to produce my play in the 2020 season. Um, and uh, hold, hold up a second. What what was yeah. that moment like? Because Steppenwolf is legendary. What, how where were you when you found out? What did that feel like when you found out? I mean, I would, I'd be lying if I didn't say it was a dream come true. You know, I actually, you mentioned earlier that I went to college in Indiana. And so we would come see shows at Steppenwolf when I was, you know, 18 years old. Right. Um, and I remember very clearly watching Pillow Man um, at Steppenwolf, uh-huh. with, you know, Michael Shannon directed by, yeah, Amy Morton and, uh, just being so moved by that experience and feeling like this is what theater is. Um, so did and, you and scream? Did you jump up and down? Did you run? Did you call everybody you knew? What, what did you do? Yeah, I mean, I was at my day job, um, actually, in New York City. And uh, oh, Wait, wait, what's the, the day call? job? Wait, what's the day job? 
Uh, well, I don't longer. I no longer work there. Well, that was my I next question. <laughs> what did you? Yeah, I want I, people to feel like what it's like to be a, a, a beginning artist. What did you have to do to keep body and soul together in New York at that time? I mean, look, it's been challenging. It's been very hard. You know, I've had a day job, a thousand day jobs since I moved to New York City as an artist. Um, I worked at this one company, arts educational company called iTheatrics. Um, love them a lot, support them a lot. Um, and also, I, I, you know, that was my day job from nine to five. And so I would every day, you know, I would make be intentional about my time. I would make sure I would sit in a coffee shop, you know, an hour for an hour at least after work so that I could really like discipline myself in some capacity. To do what? Um, to write that, at the coffee shop or, or send your work yeah, out or what did you do? You know, I would. It was it was a lot of writing. It was mm-hmm. a lot of sitting at my laptop, and mm-hmm. and sometimes you know, yeah, sometimes I if the inspiration didn't come, you know, it was a lot of just like thinking about what I wanted to do with my life in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, they that company was always so supportive of me, and so also then thinking about getting that call from Steppenwolf while I was at the office. Oh and, wow! And while I was doing my work. Yeah, I mean, I, I jumped up for joy, pure joy. You know, there was a feeling, there was a feeling that things were starting in some capacity for me, um, and and so I was I was totally overwhelmed and and overwhelmed by um, the generosity of Steppenwolf and their willingness to sort of center this story at their space. Okay, so um, now let's fast forward. Here you come to Chicago, and you need a cast of people who look sort of like your family. And- And Steppenwolf, as you pointed out, is an historically white theater company. So now what do you do? Yeah, I mean, you try really hard. You know, I mean, I think that it's obviously so important for me to to support the community out here in Chicago and and to and to honor these characters. I mean, I, I think any creative decision like casting is at the intersection of many variables, many considerations. You know, obviously, we want to serve the play. We want to make sure that we find the right spirit, the right person for the part. And at the same time, it's political because you want to make sure that you are supporting those communities that are represented on stage. And so, you know, we did auditions, um, you know, uh, in New York and Chicago. And um, and I think. Wait, wait, really? New York. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Really? New York? See, as a Chicagoan and theater lover. Why did you have to look at New York? I have to ask you, don't we have enough good people here? No, absolutely. You have the, the community out here is amazing, right? And and I'm in such awe of them. But I think you know, again, like I said, you, we are at the intersection of of many variables, many decisions, and and sometimes you know, an actor steps into the space, and that person is absolutely right for the part, right? Uh. And 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 we do have a Chicago actor who's in the play, Kobe Goss. Um, and and he's fantastic. And and at the same time, you know, we wanted to be really uber intentional about you know these parts and and making sure that the character is is properly fulfilled by an actor who is able to do it. So, okay, now I got um, another question for you. This is yeah. this is almost personal. So you've been working a long time in at your craft, at your art, and along the way, surely there are people who said or thought or you said or thought, you know, when your show goes up, Vichet, I really, really, really want to be in it. And maybe you <laughs> lightly said, Oh sure, oh no problem, we'll do that. Did did was there a moment where like 
everybody you'd ever loved and enjoyed and appreciated and been kind to you and was talented in your life showed up and said, okay, my turn, right? Yeah. You know, it is. I think everyone is very much aware of how this business works. I mean, people who I, I'm friends with in the industry. And and so I think there is maybe a little bit of that, but I think there's also a sensitivity there because, you know, anything can change at any moment. And, you know, like, I, I think ultimately what I felt was a lot of support from my peers. I oh, thank goodness. A lot of my peers understood that I had been really at this for a very long time. And to have this platform, to have this opportunity was significant. And so I never felt any sort of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, like feeling of like, oh, I need to do this in your play. You know, I I never felt that. I just felt. uh, You are so lucky. You are so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Just from my own personal life, I have to tell you that. When uh, when I was doing radio full time and somebody would get a job as a program director, if that person whom you know, you may have had that person crashing on your couch for a month, even if you weren't right for the station, there was always that moment of, OK, this is I'm really going to have to suck it up to still be friends with this person because yeah. they hired a bunch of people. And of course, in your heart of hearts, you think they're not as good as me. They're not as what, what the heck you yeah. think to yourself. And you've run into none of that. I mean, not really. You know, and I, I, for me personally, I, I, I do think of something uh, an acting teacher once told me, which is, you know, nobody's success is somebody's success is not your failure. And so I keep that energy around me. And I think, you know, some of my friends in my community um, retain that spirit. You know what I mean? Gosh, you are a better person than I am. It took everything I had. It really did. It was so hard. (laughs) I mean, I've salvaged friendships. I have. But sometimes to be your better self, you know, it's it's hard. And you never, ever, ever want the other person to feel pressured. You want them to go their creative path themselves and do what they think is best. And so there are a lot of problems. Private moments where you think to yourself, oh, this is going to be, I may need to like, I may need to go do something else for a little while and see you later. Um, yeah. 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 Have you, you've never, yeah. of course, been in that situation, right? That brings me back to the, to the scout question. Um, was it a collaborative process where Steppenwolf brought all these playwrights of color in? Was there any kind of like only one of us is going to make it like some kind of reality TV show? Or was there a real <laughs> collaborative spirit amongst you where you thought, OK, well, if my show's not chosen here, it'll be a better show and it'll be somewhere else. Yeah, no, I mean, they each workshop happens independently. So, you know, I'm aware of other playwrights who have gone through the same program. Um, but, you know, those happen within, you know, long stretches of time from each other. So I felt I feel no competition. Oh, good. Them. I think no, you don't want playwright I, survivor that you don't want. No, no, that would be gnarly. Like that would be not. Maybe it would be very dramatic. But I, I will say that I, I, I think also what I'm aware of too is that you know the community is aware that just like historically, there has not been an abundance of our stories on stage. And so yes, we could function from that mentality of scarcity and and, and fight for opportunities. But in fact, like you know my Latin A fellow playwright friends, my black playwright friends, you know I, I want them to succeed. You know. And and again, it's not a uh, forgive me for being so Pollyanna about it, but like I do think that there is an element. 
element of like when you're in it for so long and you know other people are working as hard as you as well, there's the, there's only community support there, you know, for me at least. I, I only want other people to succeed. So no survivor here. Just Good. Well, well it always works better. I mean, it really, I, I'm just not as nice a person as a lot of my friends, but I work at it. I try. I really do. So when just with the minute that we have left, um, what would you like people when they come into the theater to see your show? Um, what would you like them to feel when they come in and what would you like them to feel when they leave? I think I would desire for them to come in with a lot of curiosity, um, with a lot of openness and a lot of um, desire to lean in to what's going on. Um, and I think, you know, conversely, uh, as they step out, I hope that they feel recognized in some way, that they feel acknowledged in some way. They feel connected to the humanity that was sort of shared on stage. Um, yeah, that's what I desire. I like both of those. And I and I really do, as, as a couple generations down um, immigrant story myself, I feel everybody's immigrant story um, with the humor that really helps people to survive is a great thing. No matter whose story it is, we need to keep telling them and we need to keep seeing them and hearing them um, because it makes, if, if nothing else, it makes the theater better. <laughs> and and I'm all for that. Thank you so much. I'll look forward to, to seeing Bald Sisters. And you've just been hearing from V. Chet Chun. He is the playwright of Bald Sisters going up at Stephen Wolf. Now, um, after you see it, let me know. Send me a little message and let me know how much you loved it, and I'll do the same. You're listening to WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. It's the Joan Esposito Show. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. It is the Joan Esposito Show. I am Tori Ryder. In for Joan today. Joan's back on Monday. If you have plans to take the family to a museum, perhaps, over the next few weeks, it might interest you to know that there are some, I don't know, could you call them grumpy? Could you call them dissatisfied? I mean, nobody wants to form a union if everything's hunky-dory, right? So why is the Field Museum unionizing? Why did the Art Institute recently unionize? Let's talk to someone who's helping to run the unionization effort. His name is Anders Lindahl. He's the Public Affairs Director for AFSCME Council 31. Anders, welcome. You're on WCPT. Thank Hello. you, Terry. I'm glad to be with you. It's good to, to have you. Tell me, how bad are things at the Field Museum, and where are you in the process? And what I'm just trying to figure out, like, what could be wrong at a museum? You walk in as a patron, and it looks so, you know, busy, but happy and buzzy. And, you know, the dinosaurs are always dusted. The bathrooms are always clean. Everything always looks pretty. I even used to uh, volunteer there as a student intern back in the day when there was one Xerox machine for the entire museum. Um, 
it took it was like a half an hour walk to get to it. What is the reason that the um, employees at the Field Museum decided they wanted they wanted union representation? Well, I think it's a great tribute to those employees that your experience is so great, um, and I think that uh, that's a very common view. And it is the workers, both those that you see, you know, the folks who sell you your ticket, the folks who work in the gift shop, and those who don't, those who are managing and conserving the collection, who are studying and installing the exhibits, um, those who are working in the learning center uh, with our students when they go on field trips, uh, and, and, and then those who are doing all the behind-the-scenes work. It is because they work so hard and so well, um, and I would quibble with the characterization that you organize only because you're grumpy or dissatisfied. They are organizing because they care so much about these institutions. They love the Field Museum, the Art Institute. They want these institutions to live up to their world-class reputations as great employers as well. So what what could these what could these institutions the, the guy who hands me the tarantula on members night um what, and and the the woman who shows me how they're um stuffing the exotic bird that's going to be displayed uh, what exactly could be done to make their lives better their job better and the museum better what do they need? Yeah, Terry, I think that uh cultural workers broadly um, field museum workers, art institute employees specifically, but, but, but cultural workers broadly have been taken for granted uh, by their employers and, and frankly exploited over a long period of time. Could you be specific? Specific, specific. Don't they have, do they not have health care? Do they not have days off? Do they have to deal with uh, birds that are like full of scary, dangerous, bad things that are dangerous to them? Like if they get a, a specimen in, is it unsafe? What What is the problem? Well, wages, wages are low. Um, Can you give me a range? Like, what what are people making when they take your ticket, and what are people making if they're running the you know, the Polynesian whatever exhibit? Oh, you know, lots of people are starting at fifteen, sixteen dollars an hour, and uh, you know, then you're talking about you've got folks who have advanced degrees who are world class experts in a particular subject area and they're struggling to get by not seeing a path for advancement and and we're talking about you know working people like you and me who are trying to provide for a family uh, pay for a household here in one of the largest and, and most expensive cities in the country. So what what are you comparing? Wait, hold up, hold up. What are you comparing their wages to? Are you comp- when they go to negotiate? If you are running um, a research lab there or a collection there, who has an analogous job? whose salary you'd, you'd like to be earning, whose benefits you'd like to have. If you are the person who, you know, sweeps up after the people or keeps the elevator running or dusts the maps, what, who, a lot of these jobs are, are sort of uh, sui generis. They're the only ones of them. So who are they comparing themselves to? So 
this is a trend of cultural workers organizing around the country. And one thing that helped to spur it on was about three years ago, there was a Google Doc that was shared and went viral nationally and internationally among museum employees sharing their uh, pay for their position at their museum. And for the first time, it really uh, brought out of the darkness the practices of these museums that are not transparent, that are not equitable, they don't offer a career ladder, uh, and museum workers were able to see how their colleagues were paid inequitably, how they were paid less than folks doing similar work, and how there was no rhyme or reason to compensation across the museum sector. That Google Doc alone was a big uh, springboard for a lot of this organizing. And then I think that the pandemic, just as it did in our broader society, it did not create the inequities, but it deepened them and it shone a spotlight on them. So give me some, hold hold up, hold up. Give me, Anders, Anders, give me a couple of specific um, for instance, as like the the person who uh, creates the maps versus give me, give me like what are what is one person earning and yet it's better in I don't know Omaha at the museum there like what what are yeah let me drill down right now and give you a specific example please of yes an issue that um, the folks in the retail shop at the art institute are facing okay. Um, the museum has uh, instituted um, later hours on Thursday nights, open until 8 o'clock on Thursday nights. And uh, that's something that uh, was, was being done just through the end of this year to kind of see how things go. Then the museum announced and attempted to do so unilaterally that those hours, the 8 o'clock on Thursday nights, we're going to continue through next year, 2023. Well, it is a concern for the gift shop employees when they are finishing up work at 8 o'clock and, you know, leaving after that um, to have to ride home on public transportation, especially in the winter when it's dark and late. Yeah. Know that crime has been up on uh, some of the CTA. Yes, I I pray every day that I don't have to set foot on the red line. That is kind of part of my, you know, thank you for the food and please keep me off the red line. Yep, got it. Yes. so employees, uh, they got together through their union AIC Woo. Uh, They put together a petition and every single gift shop employee signed that petition and said, look, we understand Uh, the importance of having later hours. Uh, We understand you want to have the gift shop open. Let's find a compromise so that we stay open through the holiday season. But then in January and February, when it's going to be dark, cold, and late when we get off work, that the gift shop is not open just those Thursdays. Do they have, do they have, hold up, hold up. Do they have any, any alternative proposal? Like if you want to keep the gift shop open, you have to give us a transit allowance so we can take a cab home. Or if you want to keep the gift shop open, you know, we want you to run a shuttle bus or what? what, So, so that's what they're going to determine now because they have their union. 
they have been able to get a meeting with their with their union representation and the gift shop employees sitting down across the table from management on an equal footing for the first time, and that's going to happen in the coming weeks to discuss is there. Uh, an ability to find uh, a compromise like the one you point out. That would be good. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. More questions coming up. That's Anders Lindahl. He is assisting with the unionization effort. He is the public affairs director of AFSCME Council 31, and you'll hear more from him in a moment. It's Jonas Bezito's show. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. The Hal Sparks Radio Program. This is the week that Steve Bannon perp walked. Do you have a round of applause? Uh, I do. I do. I'll call them up. It'll take. That's not it. No, that's the sound of people seeing the spot on his forehead when he walks into the chair. That's not it either. That's the wrong one. Uh, that's the owning the libs meeting <laughs> call. He looked great. Yeah, he did, didn't he? He was wearing makeup. Hal Sparks, Saturdays from 11 to 1 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are talking with Anders Lindahl. He is the uh, assisting person organizing the Field Museum Union, which is not the same as his union. So he's going to explain in a moment the connection. If you go or take your family to the Field Museum, there's an organizing effort going on. Anders, somebody asked me, what's your connection? And asked me to the museum workers. Can you explain? Yeah, so AFSCME uh, represents what uh, we like to call public service workers. So you might uh, work in the public sector and government, like for uh, the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois, or you might uh, work for a not-for-profit. Um, but whatever our members' job is, they are providing the service to the public. And over the past two years, um, AFSCME nationally has engaged in a cultural workers united organizing campaign that uh, has brought together uh, museum and library uh, and other uh, employees of cultural institutions to form their unions in order to have a voice in the decisions that affect them uh, to try to raise their wages and benefits and to have a seat at the table across from management. So I was wrong because Lady B Lady Lady B asked me, Is is this the same union? And I thought that it was Museum Workers Union was a different union, but it isn't. It's AFSME. That's right. Okay. All right. I got that now. So okay, we talked a little bit about the forward facing employees. Could you talk a little bit about some of the things that the behind the scenes people are looking to accomplish? And again, back to that Google Doc. Um, that's another thing I'd like to hear more about. Did you ever find out who put it together and how they researched it? And was it accurate? And what happened specifically when it came out? So those are two big questions. But can you answer them? Uh, the the uh, pay uh, Google Doc uh, circulated among museum employees was crowdsourced. It was the kind of thing that uh, that museum employees heard about from their colleagues, saw on social media, and then they accessed it themselves and entered their own information. 
uh, as, you know, trying to strike a blow for transparency. How and cool is that? that is very siloed. That is so cool. And do you know who organized it originally? Who was the driving force, the idea person behind this? Because that no. is kind of genius, isn't no, I it? Think it was, no, I think it was anonymous. But, but it really showed cultural workers that they could have power and agency in a field that I think has has exploited workers and taken them for granted on this basis. These museums are iconic. They are world-class institutions. I love them. I think for a very (laughs) long time, uh, these institutions as employers have taken advantage of workers by basically implying that you are lucky to work here. Well, let me stop you again. You are, but that doesn't mean that you don't deserve good working conditions and and a decent wage and benefits package. So let's go then to the behind the scenes people. What are they looking to achieve as far as safety or whatever their goals are? What are their main goals and who are some of those people? You know, I think that uh, many of the goals are shared. You know, for example, right now at the Field Museum, just this week, management uh, popped out of the blue a unilateral hike in health insurance costs for workers of 17 to 47 percent more than they are paying now. Holy smokes. For the same, for the same coverage. And because... Field Museum employees don't have their union yet. They don't have a seat at the table. They don't have the ability to sit down and negotiate over this. Um, Once they win their union, once they're able to bargain a contract that, uh, that governs their total compensation, their wages and their benefits, uh, management is not going to be able to shove these kind of unaffordable hikes down their throat any longer. Wow. That is, I mean, I know that post-COVID, my own union has uh, had to make some changes in in the benefits package, but we know that our union is negotiating our our benefits on our behalf with our best interests in mind. So as as a member of some of the Chicago area museums and as someone who routinely gets envelopes saying, hey, support our museum, what, right. Join, you know, get, get, a, get a better membership, get a super duper family. You can use it in Brazil membership. What should the general museum going public? What should the people who uh, attend these institutions do to support the workers if we want them to have good, safe conditions and good pay? Yeah, so one thing that you can do is uh, you can find the Illinois Cultural Workers United AFSCME on social media, um, whether it's on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. We are at ILCWU AFSCME. I-L-C, I'm going to do this, I-L as in lima beans, C-W-U, at AFSCME. AFSCME, yep, I-L-C-W-U AFSCME. Okay. That's the home for uh, for the social media from uh, all of the cultural workers that are organizing in the city, including the Field Museum, as well as the Newberry Library, the great research library that just recently organized. Uh, they can also connect you up with the Art Institute Union. And there, there's a petition that folks can sign in support of the Field Museum workers. 
if I if I am being solicited to um, rejoin the field museum, I'll, I'll give you my my personal particulars. We 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 move around museum to museum, and we kind of take one membership and we just use it till we're up to our eyeballs in it, and then we pick a different one, um, and we do the same. So if if I'm being solicited to get a membership in one of these museums, does it help if if you're solicited? Can can you write back on the membership form? I'll join when you recognize the union. I'll join when you have a contract with the union. That's when I'll join. Do they read that? Does anything happen if you do that? I am sure that they read those messages. Um, you know, I think we want everybody to join these institutions and support them. But we also want people to stand with our union, stand with the employees that make these institutions great, and make clear that as a member, as a patron, as a supporter, you want workers to be treated fairly and their rights to be respected. So we're certainly not asking anybody not to patronize these institutions. We're not asking anybody not to join as a member. To the contrary, just like the workers are organizing because they love these institutions and they want them to be even better, not only places to visit, but places to work. Uh, you know, we also want the support of all patrons for employees. Okay. Now, I've got that means support for organizing. I'm going to request, Anders, I'm going to request a story from you. Um, and the story is, I call these the last straw stories. Where you had an employee who was like, I don't know if I want a union. I'm a little bit nervous. What if we have to go on strike? What if they really fire all of us? I love these stories because I've lived through them. And then management does something where they go, well, that's it. I'm not going to dangle off this cherry picker and, and dust the exotic bat exhibit for the money I'm making. What Do you have any of those last straw stories where somebody turns around their attitude? They just they see clearly all of a sudden what a union and organizing can do for them and then they get it. I mean, I think it's happening at the Field Museum right now because the organizing has already started. Workers have been have been building their union for a few months, uh, but they just recently went public. So they really, you know, brought the campaign uh, out uh, to the news media and to the patrons, started talking to every coworker. And then, uh, and then the boss turned around and said, we're going to raise your health insurance by 17 to 47% overnight. Uh, And, Field Museum employees already had a majority among their coworkers for their union. That is, a majority of their colleagues had already signed their union cards. But I think it is just a stark demonstration of what's really at stake here. It wasn't too clever of management, really, was it, in the middle of a union organizing drive to go, you know, this is the ideal moment to jack up everybody's health care costs. You kind of wonder, like, what were they thinking? And it doesn't and it doesn't have to be that way. These institutions have plenty of money. Look at the Art Institute. They are a one billion dollar institution when you look at their endowment. That's without even looking at their collection, which without exaggeration is priceless collection. Well yeah, but that you can't you can't Anders, you can't put that I mean, they're not selling it. It doesn't matter what it's worth. This is not Detroit. So that's- that's why I said without looking at the collection. Yes, don't look at the – don't you dare look at that collection. Without looking at the collection, just looking at their endowment, they have more than a billion dollars. 
And yet, when the pandemic hit, they laid people off. When the pandemic hit, they furloughed people for months on end without pay. And so I think workers really looked at what is the priority of this institution with all its vast resources? And then at, at a bump in the road, it casts us aside. Oh, yeah. To the table to ensure that can't happen again. That That's a good place to leave it. I have one more super quick, just with seconds. What's the story with the docents at the Art Institute? Are they paying them now? Did they did they fire all the little old ladies? What what quickly? What's the status of the Art Institute docents? Uh, they were volunteers. They're not a part of the union. Uh, I don't know the status of. of oh, that's of interesting. Because the not, museum yeah. said they were going to start. I believe, if I recall correctly, the museum said, "No, no, we're we're going to increase this. We want more, more minority presence, and we're going to pay them." And so, I would have assumed, if that had happened, that those people would be in the union. But that will be a subject for another day. Anders, thank you so much for joining us on WCPT. Good to have you, Anders Lindahl, the Public Affairs Director of AFSCME Council Thirty One. He is helping the cultural workers union uh, folks organize, be part of AFSCME, and you've just heard where you can go. To find out more about it, we are WCPT, where facts matter. Tune into the Tom Hartman radio program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito's Showtime 333. If you're making your way out and about onto the roadways from slightly further away than that, but still a day's drive, one of my very favorite people, gossip columnist, writer, formerly uh, regularly seen in the Minneapolis Star and Tribune, CJ. She uh, tweets at Dish Central if you want to follow her. I adore her. And she is in my pillow land. So I asked her to come on the show today to talk about this very surreal experience. It is surreal, isn't it? When my pillow's CEO, Mike Lindell, has decided to run for the RNC, Republican National Committee chair next year. He announced that this week. Um, and I guess his platform is uh, all you nuts people support me. <laughs> I don't know. What's his platform? This is a big conspiracy. Oh, get rid of judges. That was one of his. The judges in Arizona are all wrong. Yeah. He's about as woo-woo as you can get, this guy. But you will know. You're there near him, practically yeah. sleeping on the same my pillow. What What's going on? In- I, I have one of his pillows. He made, a, he made a neck pillow for me. I sleep on it all the time because I have these neck problems. Oh, let's let's just say he let's all um, what's the word let's stipulate that the man makes a good pillow. But I also want to make it clear the fact that he gave me a pillow has not altered my ability to be a, a objective when it comes to speaking. Uh, right, right. This this story this is all part of Mike Glendale's campaign to make Minnesota proud again. <laughs> we have not been proud by what we've seen from him. Lately, and why? If, if he's not making pillows, he's making himself look silly. So I, I assume that he's going to try to take Rona McDaniel's job, um, so that he can, so that he can do the important thing, 
Number one, got to have a meeting with Kanye. <laughs> just come on and rant, talk about anything he wish, about he wished to speak. Number two, he's got to engage in one of those Herschelian de- debates on weighty subjects like, is Mike more of a sheep or more of a pillowcase? What would he rather be if he could, be, if he could personify either one of those? I, I just... I, 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 I can't believe that that the Republican Party writ large is taking this guy seriously. Although, poor Ronna McDaniel, the more lies they make her tell, the the more she's just kind of screw her face up. She at this point she looks like. Do you remember those dancing raisins? She looks like the dancing raisins at this point. She just can't. She has to keep spitting out lie after Trumpy and lie. But but Mike Lindell. He comes from that soil, that paranoia, that that right. complete conspiracy. The machines were rigged, and I, he is sincere. Do you do, do you believe? If it doesn't go his way, it was was rigged. <laughs> yeah. Tell you, if the Republicans let him anywhere near that chair, we know that Trump is really still running the show, and that he is doing his level best. This is his last shot in destroying the Republican Party. I so want Mike Lindell to win. Can I just say that? I, I so... <laughs> well, you wanted to win for the same reason that, that uh, I talked to a lot of journalists who were excited about Trump winning because they knew it would be entertaining. Well, no, I was never... I, I'm, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, CJ, because I know a lot of talk show hosts who were like, oh, this is going to be great. And... Perhaps to my own detriment, I remember saying, it's not going to be great as an American. And I have to be an American and a citizen first. And my talk show might be more fun if Trump is president, but no. So, um, good for the nation. No, not good for the nation. But really, this is a good question, CJ. How much harm can he do as the chair of the Republican Party versus how much out, flat out, skippy peanut butter nuttiness will he spread around to the point where, like, everyone. Everybody wants to be everybody who was a moderate Republican, and I know a lot of them. They all like follow Liz Cheney right out the door. Yeah, right. Those are those. Uh, I never thought of Liz Cheney as being a reasonable Republican. No, that's what I call. I, that's what I call my my, my 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 closest friends who are Republicans are reasonable Republicans. Yeah, they are. They are. You wouldn't. They are, they don't have anything to do with all the craziness that's going on now. No. Although some of them are still voting for it, some of them. Uh, you're right. There's, there's a, um, yeah. Uh, well, I have this one friend uh, who uh, is was a high school friend of mine in in uh, Alabama, and I lost her phone number, and I figured out who her brother was, and I called her brother, and I said, you know, could I give me a phone number? I, I changed phones, and I lost her number. Well, I haven't heard from her, and it dawned on me the other day that the reason I haven't heard from her is she doesn't want she didn't want to hear part two of why Jeff Session is a is a racist. <laughs> our last conversation went. Oh, how long ago was that? Because Jeff Sessions has sort of receded over the horizon when it comes to dangerous people, considering what we've got on our plate now. But he's still a racist. <laughs> yeah, he's still a racist. He's just not a racist with a whole lot of power right now. 
No, he isn't. And, and he well, he was he wanted to do the right thing when he was with Trump. You know, he was saying, "Oh, nope, this I, this this goes where the attorney general shouldn't be," and so I'm not going to do that. And that's why Trump wanted to get rid of him. So, uh, but anyhow, so uh, I just say, I, maybe Mike Lindell will will do us a favor by getting rid of this iteration of the Republican Party if they since they don't want to come up with ways to improve the country they just want to come up with silliness and and back ridiculous things i don't know i just i just it's just i don't they're, they're not they're, they're becoming less and less of what i would call a worthy opponent that's a good way of putting it. I, I have to say, though, silliness is is overly kind. I mean, I think we've essentially let the Republican Party and they're behaving like a bunch of two year olds. You're right. Now, I didn't win and I don't want to be. They, they they tricked right. me. I lost because they fooled me. They didn't play fair. It's their ball. They did. And, and that's since that's two year old behavior. I think we've essentially to keep treating them like a legit political party is like handing an assault weapon to a two year old and going here, load it play with it have some fun with it because these guys sitting in washington and it's mostly guys although the marjorie taylor greens and the lauren bobert are certainly they're doing you know shoveling as fast as they can um even so um to send them off to to washington with that kind of power is it's it's irresponsible well it's going to be frenetic it's not going to make any sense just like most of the things that come out of that have come out of Mike's mouth, Abbott. I mean, he's 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 just he's just a wild man. He's and an egomaniac. So that's a that's a dangerous combination. <laughs> How are they looking at him in Minnesota? He still makes his home in Minnesota, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Now he's still, he's still got his pillow factory out there and uh, not far from uh, Paisley Park. Now, you remember when Sarah Huckabee Sanders, now the governor of her state, um, when she was maltreated at a restaurant, a D.C. area restaurant, which I thought was kind of classless. I mean, let the woman have dinner. But I'm wondering if I think I think I think that when you do horrible things and you go out in public, what it's like it's like this uh, T.J. Holmes, Amy Robach thing. If you're doing something you're not supposed to do or something you don't think people will approve of, stay home and do it. Why do you have to go out to eat? Why, do you have, why does she have to go out? Stay home. Stay home and wear your white sheet in private is what you're telling me? Your hood? Stay home. Stay home. <laughs> But they want to wear they want to wear the white sheet out in public. They want to wear the robe and the and the conical hat there out in public. That's what they want. So you're telling me they that want to be seen. they want to be seen. Yeah, they do. So I I don't get it. They were seen and they were called out. So I want to ask you: Has anything like that happened to Mike Lindell in what is still a fairly blue state of Minnesota? Can the man go out for a bad Minnesota pizza? That's me giving you my opinion of Minnesota pizza writ large. Wait, wait, wait. Punch pizza, punch pizza, punch pizza. No, no. If it's no, pizza? no pizza west of the Mississippi for me. No. No, 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 oh, no, no, no! Come to town. I've got to take you to punch. You got to come down here. There are certain things I just don't eat in Minnesota no, 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 anymore. There's good pizza in Chicago. Pizza in Chicago is where you have it. That's right. So, um, has Mike Lindell been faced with any public opprobrium for his nut bucketry? No. No. I don't know, but you know, you know this. 
Minnesotans are incredibly polite. <laughs> That's true. That is true. But we're, we're very polite. It's true. We stand, if you tell us to get in a line, we queue up. We don't complain. And so, you know, my, but Mike is on a list of people I have in, in my mind of people to whom I plan to say rude things if I run into them in public. <laughs> All right, hold on, hold on, because I want to hear what rude things you're planning to say to him, plus more, in just a moment. You're on WCPT 820. It's Joan Esposito's show. We're hearing from CJ, gossip columnist from uh, Mike Lindell's home state of Minnesota, where he makes the my pillow. And it, I, I'm I'm debating whether I would rather sleep on a railroad track or a comfortable my pillow now at this point, because. Because I don't want to help that man. Not anyway, not anyhow. Okay, more in a moment on WCPT. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It's Joan Esposito's show. I am Tori Ryder in for Joan, who returns on Monday. You can follow me on Twitter at Turi, T-U-R-I, Ryder, R-Y-D-E-R, all one word. Um, and that's a nice way to interact with me. You can also uh, tweet us right here at the station, at the station phone number, 773-763-WCPT. On the line with me, I'm so grateful. Any excuse to talk to this woman, I just love it. WCPT uh, welcomes back CJ. She is a columnist, a gossip columnist, formerly with the um, Minneapolis Star and Tribune. She tweets under the handle of Dish Central, all one word. She always has interesting things to say, but I brought her back today. I'll look for any excuse because of the my pillow, uh, Mike Lindell's statement on Monday that he is going to run. Uh, he, he believes that he will be running the Republican Party soon. Um, and CJ just just tantalizingly before uh, the last a commercial ran, CJ said that she is making plans to say some rude things to him when she sees him next. And you will see him, right? I hope I will. I, also, I haven't seen him since I interviewed him. So I don't know why I'm expecting to run into him now. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. He's, 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 you know, I'm way down on the program. He's, you know, he's got national media paying attention to him. What? What's he going to care about some has-been? But you're CJ, and you're not a has-been, and he knows that in his home state, people pay attention to Dish Central. They certainly do. So when you see him at, at, at the party that you will all be attending this right. holiday season, yes. yeah, you have uh, planned to say what to Mr. Lindell? I, I, there's just some questions that off the top of my head I'll say, Mike, are you finished embarrassing Minnesota yet? <laughs> That would be good. Have you embarrassed us enough? Uh, when you're waiting in line at Hardy's for that subpoena, do you ask for lies with that? Ooh, ooh, ooh. What do you know about the operation of a voting machine? Oh, that would be good. Is, yeah. Is, is your mom okay with you making a... Can I say Jack and finish it on on the radio? Uh, I'm sorry. Is your mom approve with you saying if you with is, you? Is your mom okay with you making a uh, a Jack a uh, posti- donkey uh, of your- donkey's posterior of yourself? Yes, yes. you could say that. Now, yeah, I and I, I met his mother. She was a sweet little lady. I, I'm assuming she's still alive. I'm not sure. I'm a 
terrible reader of obituaries. Good, because we don't want to find ourselves there. So that can't happen if we don't read them. Yeah, yeah, yeah it will eventually happen. But uh, I, I, but those are just some of the questions. And and you know, have you have you taken you know? I, and I can I can go more personal with them. What I want to know about Mike Lindell, honestly, I mean, if I could sit him down. And, and say to him, how come you had no problem with any of these voting machines until y'all started losing? Right. That That's the what, what that's I want to know. What is... That's a reasonable question. You should ask. Is that, that I, if, I, if I say him, I'll ask him that. Wait, what, was there a problem with the voting machines in 2016? Yeah, they had no. Well, although the Trumpster was lying then and saying he had won the popular vote, which of course he had not. Right. Um, they. T- it's it, very it, odd. If, if, if I win, the vote was legitimate. If I lose, the vote wasn't legitimate. It's that. It's that thing you used to say to your kid sister: "Heads I win, tails you lose." It's kind of that. <laughs> yeah, they don't. Uh, the judge now he's personally. I mean, this is the awful part, and I I want to say that my own industry has played a part in this. Where I remember distinctly listening to a talk show host who's very gifted and and a really smart guy and a good communicator, and used to be many years ago a radical liberal Democrat. And somebody I know remembers him as part of a hippie commune in Haight Ashbury in San Francisco back in the day. On, on mattresses where they were all entertaining each other as a group, um, if you follow my... But this guy, I remember it was years ago. I remember him putting stuff out into the world, and I thought, somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get killed. Somebody's really seriously going to be injured. And they're going to throw their hands up and say, wasn't wasn't me. You know, I didn't do it. I just said blah, blah, blah. And I don't... I don't understand at this point how people can go home and and face their spouses and children and not understand the harm that they are doing um, by putting this kind of of paranoia, hatred, invective, um, violent language sometimes. And and Mike Lindell, despite looking like a you know nice normal business guy. When he goes after judges like this, it's dangerous. And, and you know, and, and, yeah, I'm so proud of these judges, the, the ones who, uh, something happens to people when they're named judges often. I think 90% of them, they decide that, you know, I, this is my legacy. I wanted to be, I wanted to be well regarded. I wanted to be well remembered. And they try to do the right thing. Unlike that, the, the, the judge Aileen. Oh, uh, you read my mind. Yes, that woman. For those, wait. Let's just let's just for those who are bad with names. Aileen, is it Connolly or something like that? She she's the Cannon. Trump. I'm sorry again. Cannon. Cannon. Right. Okay. Aileen Cannon is the Trump appointee in Florida, who, whether deliberately or not. Uh, w- it resulted in holding up the investigation of Donald Trump hoarding um, government documents at Mar-a-Lago. And every single judge, including recently an appeals panel consisting of all Republican and two Trump appointees in New Orleans, basically told her that that she's full of whatever Mike Lindell puts in his pillows. She's not she hasn't got all four tires on the ground. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. So. The, yeah. So. So. It's. So. It's. It, 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 you know. When judge and even the Supreme Court has been doing the right thing. They've been saying, "Oh, well, you know, the rules apply to you too." Move it along there. <laughs> yes. So far, I'm I'm a little bit nervous about what uh, Clarence Thomas will do when certain things come before him. But um, we I, should we should be very very concerned about Clarence. But I've been I've been worried about him for years. Yes. Well, Anita Hill was when I started being worried yeah. about him. But it's, it's I funny. Believe Anita Hill. Would would I be falling into the same category of talk show hosts that I just uh, cast aspersion on if I said we should just keep feeding Clarence Thomas fried foods? <laughs> I think no matter what he orders at a restaurant, they should fry it for him. I think if he orders like a salad, they should bread it and fry it. Get yeah, it to him that way. Yeah. Yes. And he, yeah, he's he's going to outlive us. <laughs> I don't know how he does it by all accounts. You know, he he's not he's not eating a healthy diet by all accounts. Until, he doesn't eat a healthy diet either. Yeah, I'd like them to fry everything that he has too. Everything. Fries, okay. He wants the give him the fries. He wants a steak, fry that too. And put a milkshake next to it, please. <laughs> and then I'm not, you know, does that make me one of those talk show hosts? I might be falling into that category. I cannot help myself. If the guy, seriously, they should, they should deep fry his napkin so that when he wipes it, his mouth with it, he gets just a little more and make sure, make sure there's salt on everything, everything that man eats. If that guy has a glass of milk in the morning, just wave a big old salt shaker over it and make sure it has chocolate too. Just keep it. Just keep it coming to him. If I, I, it's kind of the Hansel and Gretel school of uh, of diet that I'm advocating here. Remember Hansel and Gretel, and now she was. Yes. yes. I don't know. That might make me a bad person, but that's what I'm hoping for. And I, I guess like I make well, we sure you, we know you're a better person than Trump and uh, Clarence. Well, thank you for saying that. I I appreciate that vote of confidence. Only your friends will stick up for you that way, even after you've just advocated putting palm oil in every single thing that Trump and Thomas consume. And butter, but lots of butter. Toast in the morning. I want the toast to be hardly visible. I want it to have like a stick of butter. Stick of butter on it. All of it. Everything. Just here. Have some butter. Um, have some toast a little bit under your butter. Yeah. that's. I mean, you know what? I hate to say this, and I shouldn't speculate, but perhaps Melania would be grateful. <laughs> well, she, I don't think she's very much now anyhow, so he, he, she would hardly go, realize that he was gone. <laughs> uh, you know, um if she did, I would love to be, you know, we had a playwright on last hour and I asked how he felt the moment he heard his show had been accepted by Steppenwolf. If I could have one photograph taken at the moment that somebody received a piece of news, if Donald Trump succumbed to one too many buckets of fries, if someone could just take a picture of Melania's face when she hears that. Just yeah, I, I don't want him to, you know, I don't want him. I, I'm not wishing him dead. God forbid. Just slightly decommissioned. 
just maybe in need of some medical help for a while. Not nothing serious, just a little side side trip for him for a while. I would say I don't really care. Do you? Yeah, she might. She might. So you'll keep us posted on Mike Lindell and what he's up to. Any other good gossip? Looking for any other good gossip from the Great White Plains that we should know about? Um. No, 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 not, not, not off the top of my head. We've taken up, a, I've taken up enough radio. No, you're great. I, I will have you. I hope that and people are going to go. Did you just say you hope that Donald Trump drops dead? I just want to be clear. I'm not saying I hope Donald Trump drops dead. I want to say very clearly, I am not, not, not saying he should drop dead. I'm just saying a little sideline, little therapeutic time, working on his body and health and meditating a little. Maybe that's all I'm asking for. It doesn't seem to be a lot. No, just well. He's a, he's he's a, he's not taking care of himself. So yeah, well, it's working for him though. Yeah, so far so good. There are a bunch of other yeah. middle-aged white guys who are following the Donald Trump diet plan because if it works for him, yeah. it should work for them. And they're all expecting invitations to Mar-a-Lago. And you know what? The worse they are, the more likely it is that they're going to get them. Thanks, CJ. It's always wonderful to talk to you. I love it. Love to talk to you. Thank you. CJ is the uh, publisher of Dish Central. You can find her on Twitter at Dish Central. Gossip columnist, Minnesotan, and our spy in the house of Mike Lindell, possible future leader of the Republican Party. This is WCPT Chicago's Progressive Talk. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. It's Pro Time because at Lowe's it's November. Over 30 days to save big. Full of more inventory, more Lowe's MVPs bonus points, and more of the deals you deserve. Because it always pays to be a pro at Lowe's. Save all November long. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Just about 4.05, I am Tory Ryder. In for Joan Esposito, Joan returns on Monday. Good to be with you. We've been hearing a lot about the race for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. And... um, We've been asked, I'm sure you've been asked, if you give any money at all to anybody in the Democratic Party for more money for Senator Warnock. And some of us have been asked to volunteer our time. And I'd like you to meet a woman who actually flew to Atlanta on her own dime and is currently volunteering to get Senator Warnock returned to Washington, D.C. and defeat Herschel Walker. Sarah Zimmerman, welcome to WCPT. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Tell me, um, first of all, what made you decide that you had to get on a plane and go to Georgia? Um, at first, I thought that this was going to be the de- deciding Senate vote, um, that this would be the, the vote that would decide if Democrats had a majority in the Senate. And so I'll have to admit, once we heard that there was already a Senate majority, I thought, well, do I really need to go vote? But then I thought, you know what? Having that razor-thin majority does not guarantee by any means that working people will get representation in the Senate. We know that there are some Democrats who aren't that supportive of the values that I hold here. Uh, are so we thinking really of Kristen Cinema here by any rare chance? Um, yeah, maybe Kristen Cinema, maybe Joe Manchin. Um, so having that slightly higher margin, on it, but also sending a message. You know, sending a message that we need to defeat someone who is a Trump supporter and who is 
so incapable of being a senator and not wanting to give that person a platform. He is a little alarming. So what what happened? Yeah. You got on a plane. When did you arrive? Um, so I got <clears> down <throat> here late Wednesday night. Uh, I, I put out on Facebook, hey, does anyone have a place I can stay? A dear friend of mine's sister has a condo here and said, hey, sure, go stay at my stay at my sister's condo. So I met her the night before. We had a drink. She gave me the keys. Flew to Atlanta, went into the strange place, got up in the morning, showed up to volunteer. And what have they had? You Are there a lot of people like you who've come from around the country just on their own steam to volunteer for the senator? Um, so there are people that have organizations that have recruited volunteers, um, a lot of labor groups, um, some progressive community organizations. Um, but I would say that it's incredibly needed and there are not that many people out here. Huh. Um, I have. Yeah. I'm um, surprised. I would have thought that they would be inundated, that people would be driving vans full of people to, to volunteer. Yes, there has not there has not been an inundation. So I do feel that what I'm doing really does make a difference. I got three people today who didn't know that early voting ended today that agreed to go to the polls today instead of Tuesday. Cool. Um, crazy fact, right? Yeah. Can't vote on the weekend. Can't vote early on the weekend before Election Day because of Georgia's crazy voting law from March 2021. Now, they, d- yeah, there's been a big effort, and this is one thing that Stacey Abrams was actively um, drawing attention to, was that the state of Georgia was doing everything it could to make it harder to vote. So uh, from where you're sitting, is is that working for or against the Democrats? Um, so the Democrats have done a great job at getting folks to turn out early. Um, over 1.4 million have already voted. Um, but there, I would definitely say that there's a lot of misinformation out there. I had people who said, oh, I'm going to vote early on Monday. I said, nope, you're not. Oh. Early voting ends today. Oh, boy. Um, the and what they've done, they've um, the Republicans have cut the voting um, locations where you can vote early as well as the time period. Yes. And so today, yesterday and today, we've seen like one, two, three hours of people waiting online to vote early. Oh, my gosh. That's huge. That's and, really yeah. huge. And are they arresting people for bringing them water, which was one of the things we heard a lot about after the last um, election? No one's gotten arrested yet, but I have heard some uh, ministers say they might do some civil disobedience and give out water and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to grandmas waiting online. Well, on a three-hour line, I'd be giving them a portable Barco lounger and a foot massage pretty much at that point. <laughs> so tell me, um, what what exactly are you doing there every day to day? What's a typical day for Sarah Zimmerman in Atlanta volunteering for Warnock? Yeah, so I get... I get up in the morning, I hop on MARTA, then I walk 20 minutes to the location. Um, MARTA is a public transportation system. I'm glad you explained that. People might have thought there's some poor old lady hauling you around. (laughs) Go ahead. So hop on the subway, walk 20 minutes. I don't have the money to rent a car, and so I'm partnered with other volunteers. We drive out together. Uh, There's a great um, electronic system where you get the your list of houses on your phone and you go to a house it gives you the information about the person there it's what kind of information home. what kind of information does it give you um it basically just tells you the age and the name of the person in the household from the the public information 
Are these registered voter. Democrats or independents or Democrats? I, yeah, or independent. Okay. All right. Um, and we are focused on occasional voters, so not people that vote every election, because we're assuming that those are the ones that are most important to convince if they need to be convinced or to help them overcome obstacles to get out and vote. What are some of the obstacles you're running into when you find people at home? I'm assuming that there are a lot of times you don't find people at home. So you leave what literature or offer them help getting to a poll or what are what what are the scenarios you run through? Yes. So all of that, if they're not home, we'll leave a flyer that also has a website they can go to if they want to find a polling place. Um, the obstacles might be they don't have a car, so we're hooking them up with organizations that will provide rides to the polls. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are older and they're worried about waiting online. I told a few people today that, that with the, even with the new law, if you're 75 or disabled, you're actually allowed to go to the front of the line, and no one knew that. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So are you are you letting voters online know that to, to yield your spot to somebody who's older looking and needs assistance? Um, so today we were going to people's houses and apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, on Tuesday, we very well may start going to the lines and convincing, trying to convince people not to leave if there are long lines. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, don't leave and please, but please give this elder a spot ahead of you. Right. Do they have a special entry point for people who are um, disabled or differently abled or elderly? Is there like an entrance the same way that there might be an accessible entrance if you are a wheelchair user? Um, I don't think so. What we were told is they're just allowed to get out of line and go to the front of the line. Okay. Well, that's it's it's pathetic. It's like at least there's something. So you already told a couple of people they can't vote early after what was it yesterday? Today. Today. And so that's like two or three votes you got for for Warnock. How does it feel when you help somebody vote who might not otherwise be voting? I think when you're doing this kind of election work, when I do this kind of election work, when you when I first start, it's frustrating because it's very one-on-one. It's very one person, one household by one household. Maybe you get a couple people a day. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it was only 40,000 vote difference in November, the first time around with these two yeah. candidates. Yeah. Every vote really does matter. So when I'm talking to people who say, thank you, I didn't know that. I really appreciate it. I will get out and vote. Just that one conversation makes my heart sing. Yeah, I, I my first volunteering gig was uh, Abner Mikva's race, suburban Chicago, and he had been uh, redistricted out and had lost an election because he got into a snit with. Well, it wasn't a snit; they were diametrically opposed Democrats with Mayor the old the original Mayor Daley. And when he came back and won after he'd been redistricted, he got up on stage on election night and said, "I won by three votes per precinct, and every single one of you volunteers." Probably Probably brought in three votes per precinct. Wow. I never forgot it. It's it's the yeah. kind of thing that really sinks into your soul. Like you get three votes there and everybody else gets three votes. 
that's how you win. Well, hold on a moment. We'll talk some more about it. We've got somebody who wants to speak about Herschel Walker and his views about Mr. Walker, who will join us. All of this coming up on WCPT. It's Joan Esposito's show, just about 4.15. If you're making your way home, you're 45 minutes away from Patty Vasquez, who's around for two hours now. Twice the Patty, you should know. Twice as much to look forward to. WCPT, where facts matter. Hey, this is Reverend Mitchell L. E. Kenna Johnson inviting you to join me every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Yes, that's early. But when you get there, you'll find information, education, and you may just be entertained. That's the My Community Plan Foundation Hour, Sunday mornings at 7 on WCPT Radio, 820 a.m. Because facts matter. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan. Joan returns Monday. And we're talking with uh, Sarah Zimmerman, who on her own dime and under her own steam, took some time to fly to Atlanta and is volunteering uh, for Senator Warnock in his upcoming runoff race against Herschel Walker. Uh, Sarah, we have somebody, uh, Brad, from Elk Grove, who has some thoughts about the opponent. Brad, welcome. You're on WCPT. Um. I don't know you'll find too many white guys calling a black guy an Uncle Tom, but I... I I, I don't know if you're allowed to call him an Uncle Tom. Could you could you make this point without calling him an Uncle Tom? Because that just makes me nervous. What, what would you... What do you actually think of the man other than... No, but he's a puppet. He's a puppet. He's a puppet. He's... He's a puppet for all the bad things in the Republican Party, and it's very cynical that they put somebody that's completely unqualified. That I mean, he he he. I don't know that he could he could be the dog, the city dog catcher. Well, I have to tell you, and it's unfortunate. Usually, this happens in Congress and not in the Senate. But there are some, there are some people sitting in chairs in the House of Representatives who I, you know, they could use a little bit of additional education, if nothing else, about how government is supposed to work. And maybe they also skipped a little history, and maybe their math and science skills aren't too strong. So, but in the Senate, in the Senate, typically uh, filters out. Out for brighter. Not, I mean, there have been there have been exceptions. I, I, Texas, I'm looking at you. Uh, Florida, looking at you too. But um, you're you're right. I I think. And Sarah, what are you hearing as you walk? Are you hearing? Um, and, and I'm going to thank you for calling, Brad, and, and let you go. Sarah, what are you hearing about the opponent as you walk? Um, most of the time I'm hearing we need to do anything, people saying we need to do anything we can to keep Herschel Walker from getting elected. And the independents um, are saying this too? Absolutely. 
have are they familiar with his campaign or are they mostly familiar with his sports career? I mean, independent voters often aren't spending a lot of time. They're busy working, feeding their families, whatever it is they have to do just to keep going. How informed uh, do you think that your average independent infrequent voter is about how inept Herschel Walker is? Um, I think that the Warnock campaign has done, a, and, and the organizations that support Warnock have done a pretty good job of taking clips of Herschel Walker's speeches and using those in ads. So that's been one way that they've amplified the message about how unfit Walker is for this position. And are people acknowledging that they've seen the I, I ran the audio from my favorite ad of the people in the little sound booth listening to him just mm-hmm. disgusted and appalled. But are so people that message is getting through. Do they say or do you ask do you have time to ask where are you seeing these ads? Are they seeing them on TV? Are they seeing them on their computer, their phone? Where are they seeing these adverts? I have not had a chance to ask. I know that when I go into restaurants. Um, and when we have lunch and take a lunch break, um, the ads are being run on Fox News down here. Really? Being run on Fox News. Mm-hmm. That's impressive. I, uh, although they have to take those ads. Um, can, mm-hmm. can I share with you a little a little story? Um, sure. I have a friend who worked in Chicago years ago for NBC. He was an engineer, and uh, they had a labor dispute with their union and NBC and they knew the engineers that political ads had to be run and had to be run at the best time available and for the lowest price that the station was charging anybody that's the law for broadcast I don't know what it's like online so they found they recruited some guy who had absolutely no chance of winning whatever election he was in, just some like 12th party candidate running for, I forget what, maybe governor. And they said, we'll let you put your name at the beginning and end of the ad we want to run. Are you game? And he said, sure. So he said, you know, I'm Joe Cool and I'm running for governor. And then for 27 seconds, the union ran an ad that they'd produced dissing NBC and its labor policy and how they were being treated. And this ad ran on NBC in the middle of the evening news and they had to take it because at the end it said, I'm Joe Cool and I'm, you know, I approve this message in my campaign for governor. And there was nothing that management could do about it. They had to run it. How clever. It was very clever. And I'll have you know that that friend who was behind that is actually one of my favorite moderate Republicans. So he doesn't like me to tell that story in public, but it's true. That's great. Yeah, that was a labor effort I approved of. So, so people, yeah. so Fox is running the um, the Warnock ads. And when you're in the diner, do people watch these ads? Are you watching them watching? What do they look like when they're watching? Um, they come on like during the soccer match. Uh-huh. Um, for example, the World Cup. Yeah. Um, and it's mainly on in the background, but the. Screens are pretty big, so I think the visual as well as the audio is is available, as well as um, the, you know, what do they call it, the, the words underneath the screen. Um, the other thing I think that people are feeling about um, Walker is he's a hypocrite, right? I've, I've heard that he paid for abortions, but he opposes abortion. Yeah, 
for anyone under any circumstances. For anyone under any circumstances. Except for him. People don't like a Right. People don't like a hypocrite. So that's part of it. But really, they think that he's a clown, a buffoon, a dangerous. And there's just a lot. I I, I don't remember the exact statistic, but I think it might be something like 96% of people have their minds made up that are being pulled. So at this point, it's just getting your people to the polls is everything now, right? And it's going to rain on Tuesday. So I've been saying, I wonder if we could just leave boxes of ponchos in the parking lot. We can't give them out because of the law. We can't give out umbrellas. But could I go to the dollar store and buy boxes of ponchos and leave them in the parking lot? That's a great idea. I would totally do that. And maybe if the poncho, well, I guess you're not allowed to have buttons or political slogans or but could you put a bumper sticker on the box of the ponchos that said, you know, ponchos provided by Senator Warnock right on the box of ponchos? Or Senator Warnock supporter? I mean, I guess if it's far enough away from the polling place, I think that's what the law says is it has to be a certain distance away. I would totally go to the dollar store and buy those ponchos. Yeah. And if I couldn't do that, I would go to the hardware store and buy a bunch of contractor bags and at least cut, you know, holes in the right. top. That's a great idea. Well, you're creative. So one other one other fun fact that I learned that I thought you'd get a kick out of. Mm-hmm. Did you know that in southern states and places they still celebrate Robert E. Lee Day? I did, much much to my amazement. But for those who don't know, yeah, explain. So um, in Jan- his birthday is actually in January, which is a holiday in some places. But they, in Virginia, I believe they combined it with Martin Luther King Day, which is... Oh, that's bizarre. really ugly. It's crazy. Um, here in Georgia, it's the day after Thanksgiving. So they've changed the name to say it's just a state holiday, not that it's Robert E. Lee Day. <laughs> But they, the reason I bring it up is because the March election, the, the March law that's trying to keep people from voting, um, says that after an election, you can't have early voting on the Saturday following a Thursday or Friday holiday. Which would have been Thanksgiving, Robert E. Lee Day, which would have pushed everything back two more days. Right. And the Warnock campaign did sue to get a Saturday, but... There's been quite some quite crazy um, shenanigans along those lines. They did get the Saturday. Didn't, they did get the Saturday, though, right? Saturday they back. got it. Mm-hmm. They got a Saturday back. Well, I'll send you 10 bucks to go to the dollar store. Just put that on my tab. <laughs> okay. And, and I think everything at the dollar store is now a buck and a quarter. So whatever buys you 10 yeah. ponches, I'm down for that. I'd rather do that than respond to one more of these. We need your help. Please send us money. We really mean it. I, if I knew that my 11 bucks or whatever it is, is is buying some ponchos for some people who are actually trying to vote in the great state of Georgia, I, it would make my heart happy. So tell me how much you spend and where to send it. And I will keep I will, some Georgia voters dry. I will definitely do that. And um, Tree, can I just have one more shout out? There's an organization down here doing amazing work called the Black Men's Initiative Fund, BMI, mm-hmm. and folks can Google it, but they're doing just incredible work supporting community organizing, organizing around the rights of the black community, organizing around civic engagement, starting at age seven, doing civic engagement work with kids through basketball. 
helping folks who are coming out of prison. Okay. Um, more involved. I think you have shouted. Incredible you, work. You have Thank shouted you. them out, the Black Men's Initiative. Sarah Zimmerman, I am so grateful for what you're doing, and I'm glad that you were willing to talk to us about it. Thanks for being with us on WCPT 820. I'm Tori Ryder. We're about a half an hour away from Patty Vasquez. It's Joan Esposito's show. In a moment, will Chicago and what would happen if we did? What what would happen if Chicago took a page out of the New York playbook when it comes to dealing with mentally ill homeless people who are living in our streets and public transit? We'll talk somebody talk with somebody who who serves that community and get his thoughts. And I'd love your thoughts too on WCPT eight twenty. Here are the CNBC business updates each weekday at 9.30, 12.30, and 4.30. Now, your WCPT 820 Chicago Traffic Report. Outbound Edens, Montos to Lake Cook is 14 minutes. Inbound Edens is 40. The Kennedy outbound from the burn interchange to O'Hare is 43 minutes. And the inbound is 50. Outbound Eisenhower from the old post office to Wolf is 43 minutes. Inbound, 46. It's a stop and go on the Stevenson outbound from the DuSable Lakeshore Drive to I-355. And it's 59 minutes. And Stevenson inbound is 49. On the outbound Dan Ryan Downtown to 95th Street is 30 minutes, inbound 19. On the Bishop Ford outbound Ryan to I-80 is 94, 16 minutes, inbound is 17. On the southbound DuSable Lakeshore Drive, Hollywood to Monroe is 21 minutes. Northbound is 14 minutes. Now this is Miss Lady B on WCPT 820. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I am Tori Ryder in for Joan. If you wish to communicate with me personally, as they used to say. If you watch The Three Stooges, you can find me at Tori Ryder. That's T-U-R-I-R-Y-D-E-R, all one word. That's my Twitter. Um, and in a moment, we're going to speak with somebody who uh, can maybe give us some insight on what it may mean uh, if Chicago follows New York City down the path of trying to hospitalize people who are on the streets, mentally ill, and not necessarily a danger to other people, but a danger to themselves. I want to take a moment, though, to go over some of the texts that you sent. Thanks so much, Sarah, the groomer, for your good wishes. And um, (laughs) Sarah writes, stuff that orange, and we'll just use a blank here, so full of lard, he croaks, you want to, but you can't say it. (laughs) Moment of levity there. Uh, Someone else had a thought about Kanye. Uh, Yay, that uh, he is now a card-carrying member of the Nazi party, um, and he wants to eliminate all Jews from the planet. So I think that it's pretty clear that uh, that uh, 
well, let me just sum up from the text, which is a little bit long. Uh, Yay can be a Nazi and a ho for Trump. Mark Ishog, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, joins us now. Did I get that right, Mark? You're, uh, you got it completely right. Completely right. Wow. And and you are yeah. a staff person at Thresholds. Um, and you have some thoughts since you inter- interact with homeless persons regularly. Can you give me and folks who are listening a little thumbnail sketch of Thresholds and what you do for the homeless population here in Chicago and how you typically interact with them? Yeah, thanks so much, Tori. It's really great to be with you. Again, my name is Mark Kishong. I'm the CEO of Thresholds, one of the state's largest and oldest mental health providers uh, and substance abuse treatment providers, actually, uh, serving about 7,000 people a year. Uh, One of the things that's really unique about the way that we do our work is that uh, our hallmark is like outreach. We go to where people are at, wherever they are living, in their homes, in the streets, uh, sometimes in jail or nursing homes, uh, we go to where people are at. Are you a, are you a, successfully. are you a faith-based yep. organization or are you, um, for-profit, non-profit? Give a little tip oh, about no, that. We're a, yeah, we're a non-profit. We've been around since 1959, uh, and focusing on those with serious and persistent mental illness. Okay. Uh, people who in the fifties used to be institutionalized. So, okay, you said the magic word. It used to be institutionalized. I'm not sure you're following the story, but like Chicago, New York City has a huge homeless population, many of whom are clearly mentally ill by anybody's standards. Um, And up until now, there's just been, if, if someone didn't willingly come in for treatment or housing, or even if they did, sometimes they could lose housing if they couldn't function even in supportive housing. And I could tell you a story about that, and I'm sure you have some for me. You couldn't force them into a hospital setting for care that actually in some ways might help them. But now New York has a rule that says um, they can involuntarily hospitalize people deemed too ill to care for themselves. So everyone agrees we need to do something. In your opinion, would this help? Well, so I'm going to be really blunt here, and I'm going to talk about how I believe that the mayor of New York's policy is punitive and strips people of their agency and dignity, uh, and we don't support it. But before I go there, let me just give the viewers, or viewers, uh, the listeners, uh, a little bit of context just so they know the situation here in Chicago, right? Nearly 77,000 Chicagos are homeless or uh, experiencing housing insecurity. And about a third of these, so 25,000 people who are experiencing homelessness, also have a serious mental illness. And most would benefit uh, from receiving community-based services like us if there were more services like us and more money to do what we do. So that's sort of the context and the scope of the problem. Uh, It's big. uh, And it really is related principally to the lack of affordable, supportive housing here in the city and everywhere. Well, let me pause you for a second. I want to I want to speak to that because um, 
I believe is a 46th Ward Alderman, James Kappelman, puts out a newsletter. And there are a lot, there's a big uh, homeless population in the 46th in Chicago. And uh, Alderman Kappelman was formerly, I believe, a social worker. And he wrote this lovely, sweet, moving piece about uh, the death of someone he used to see regularly on the streets. And at least, if I remember this letter correctly, at least three different times, this um, person who I believe preferred they pronouns uh, was placed in supportive housing. And this person could not function. They could not function in supportive housing. There was a hygiene problem. There was a, a bathroom problem. The space was trashed in three different places. And there were no... That person ultimately died in a bus stop where they were sleeping. So what do you do if you've if you've tried to provide supportive housing and the person can't function at that? Is there any point where you can say to somebody, we're going to put you in a medical a hospital care setting so that you don't die? Yeah, so that situation that the alderman described is tragic, and uh, I mean beyond words, tragic. Uh, but but it's also not the standard. Uh, people who get access to a safe, affordable housing with wraparound services thrive. We've been doing this for sixty years, and our partners throughout the city of Chicago and Illinois and the state have thousands and tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people with the right services and housing thrive. So that's what we have to focus on. Now, for those situations where somebody has not been able to thrive, we do have alternatives, and we have to look at those alternatives. What should and they look like? What a, what should that so look a, like? But for So there is a role for involuntary hospitalization, but it's so infrequent. And there's lots of rules and regs here when we can use it, and certainly threshold will use it in narrow circumstances where the individual is in immediate danger to themselves or to others. Uh, because safety and health and life is a huge concern. But I just think that the, what the mayor of New York has done doesn't sound like it's included uh, input from the people on the ground, boots on the ground experience of mental health and housing providers about how to address this situation. This feels like a cleanup situation to me, clean up the problem of homelessness. That's not what we need to do here. We need to fix the problem of homelessness by providing more affordable housing and more wraparound services, exactly what we do. And we have to make sure that people with serious mental illnesses and recognize that these folks are far less likely to be criminals than be victims of violent crimes committed against them. Okay, let, let me pause you. I'm going to, I'm going to, Mark, I'm going to pause you again. Sure. Uh, I was on the air in okay. Seattle years ago. And there was a story in the independent press that made a big impression on me. It was a story, and and I've heard this from other people who have family members who have what I believe is now um, diagnosed as schizophrenia, uh, which many times is characterized by hearing very real voices of real people or not real people or long dead people. And um, in this case... There was a young woman living under a viaduct whose family had said very clearly they would be happy to take her in, uh, the sister, the sister's husband, and the kids, on one condition, that she take her antipsychotic medicine, 
but she wasn't willing to do that. So she was living in this very, as you correctly describe it, very vulnerable situation. And so the paper caught up with her and they interviewed her and they said, you have an option. You don't have to be sleeping here under this bridge. All you'd have to do is take your medication and you would have a home. Your sister loves you, would be happy to have you there. And she said, I've never forgotten this. When I take my medication, I don't hear the voice of God speaking to me. And I don't want to live without the voice of God speaking to me. And right there, I got a clue about how really difficult it can be to provide what we consider to be necessary care and what sometimes the patients consider to be really um, involuntary care. What, what do you do when you're confronted with someone like that? Yeah, so we're confronted by this all the time. And, you know, this is why we have a homeless outreach program at Threshold, a street outreach program with uh, with dozens of staff people who are reaching out to people that are homeless and struggling with mental health or substance abuse conditions. And we've been doing this successfully for decades. And just so the readers can understand, like visualize this, you know, we have teams of two that go out to this in the city every single day, including on the CTA and its shelters and under viaducts, you know, where people are living and engaging them. You know, what we call what we do is the relentless pursuit of engagement. And this is starting by meeting people to where they're at, getting them a warm meal, getting them socks, getting them a hat, getting them a coat now. And in the winter, the dead of winter, finding them shelter or a place to live, you know, even getting them dental care or uh, hospital uh, or, or primary care. You know, it's a long process, but it works. Well, I don't know about this is the thing that's hard for for me. I mean, I want it to work. I donate money to places that, you know, hopefully will improve care. We have a community hospital in my neighborhood that has a closet of stuff for people who come in in the neighborhood. The people who live on the streets in the neighborhood know that this closet is there. They'll come into the ER and say, I need socks. Um, But it doesn't, you know, where in this equation is there a place for the neighbors who have to pick their way through garbage, excrement, uh, fires that blow up Lakeshore Drive from gas, propane grills. Like what, what, what should that interface be like? Is there not any reason why New Yorkers have a right to say, you, you use the words a cleanup organization, but is there, is there any expectation or right of the citizenry to use their public spaces without running into people who are, at best, um, not supposed to be in those spaces, and at worst, destroying or creating hazardous or dangerous conditions in those spaces. Yes, we want to make Chicago and every city as safe and as livable for everyone. Everyone deserves a place to live in a clean, safe neighborhood and not having to walk over trash i don't include people in that definition certainly not absolutely not rat right so um and the people who are unfortunately living in encampments or living under viaducts or living on bridges uh, are living in situations that are um that have to be addressed i say this all the time and i know that you agree that the Homelessness and lack of mental health resources and substance abuse treatments is a political problem, and it requires a political solution. 
Well, we I agree, and I, I also... SROs. No, I'm going to talk over you now. We lost Actually, no, you're not. Actually, <laughs> you're not going to talk over me. It doesn't work like that. Okay. Um, okay. Mark, I, I understand that it's, it's a political problem, but it's also a financial problem, and it's also a medical problem. So to, to assume it's only a political problem that politicians can fix, I think, is, is also not responsible. And I want to hear what you have to say about that. And I won't be talking over you for most of what you have to say about that. So just stand by for a moment. 773-763-9278 is the number if you've got a question for Mark. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It's 4.49. We're roughly 15 minutes away from Patty Vasquez. Two hours of Patty now. And in a moment, we will be rejoined by Mark Ishog, who is the director, CEO of Thresholds. They're a North Center nonprofit. Um, they've got a four-star rating from Charity Navigator, by the way. But they're not broke. They just got a million dollars to renovate and build out um, mental health services for youth. So that was a good thing. That just happened in July. But Mark and I were discussing the New York City policy that now when there are people who are clearly mentally ill and unhoused, if it feels it is reasonable to do so, the city can involuntarily hospitalize them. Is that something we should be doing in Chicago? Mark says absolutely not. And he posited that it's a a political problem. And I said, I think it's medical and financial as well. So that's where we left things. Mark, welcome back. WCPT. Thank you. Good to be back. But let me just be clear. What I did say is that there is. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Oh, good. Good. Uh, That there is a role for involuntary hospitalization uh, when it is absolutely needed. You know, there's lots of rules and regs that govern this in Illinois and every other place. And we have used it in narrow circumstances and will use it when an individual is in immediate danger to themselves or others. What if they're not? What if? Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. What if they're not in immediate danger, but they're like a frequent flyer? You get them medicated, you get them adjusted, you find them a place to live. And then like this person that the alderman referenced, the minute they're out on their own, even with a lot of support services, they just can't function and they make their space unlivable and then they have to leave and they're back on the street. This this rotating uh, wheel of homelessness is not, I'm sure, unfamiliar to you. What then? Right. Yeah, it is, it is a challenge and frequent flyers are a challenge, but all the research that we've done over the years, uh, including research from the Center for Housing and Health based out of the AIDS Foundation of Chicago, uh, has shown that Permanent supportive housing with wraparound services prevents that vicious cycle of in and out of hospitals. People get into situations with good wraparound services and they do recover and they stay housed. That is the evidence. The outliers are for those that are not able to get that. And let me talk really quickly about this. You know, when I said that there's a political solution to so many of these problems for years, the rates, the Medicaid reimbursement for what we do was flat. For like a decade. And last year, we led a campaign that brought in $170 million a year in new state Medicaid funding for community mental health services. You know, that's a game changer. That means we're going to be allowed to hire new staff. We're going to be able to retain these hardworking staff. And we're going to be able to respond to the need 
The other thing that we launched this year, Tori, which is really exciting, is a mobile crisis response team. You know, this is a non-police response, a 24-7, 365 response on the north side where we're operating and others are operating in other places that are able to respond to these kinds of situations, the people on the street, the people in homes, to de-escalate situations. Uh, we also opened up a living room uh, at our North Center site, uh, which is a drop-in center with people that are in crisis can come for a calm, safe space and be greeted by peers like themselves and other mental health professionals. So all I'm saying is that there's lots of um, alternatives to both police response and to involuntary hospitalization. Okay, I'm not arguing. I'm I'm not going to argue with you that there's lots more that we could do, for sure. And let me ask you, um, we had touched on, and you had mentioned, that people who live in a city deserve to be able to walk around their city and have it be clean and have it be lovely and not have to um, just go four miles out of their way, or in the case of my neighborhood, a mile out of the way to be able to cross to the park and the lakefront because you can't, you know, you're walking through somebody's set up living room to get there. It's it's a difficult situation. You either have to walk in the middle of the street or you have to walk through an encampment and everyone is cordial and everyone is nice, but it's not always a safe feeling and it's not certainly not clean. So... Um, I would love you to to address that and also your thoughts on supportive housing that does not require abstinence or sobriety. I know that some cities are putting together housing for people without requiring them to be clean and sober, and it saves the city a lot of money. What's your experience with those sorts of facilities? Do you have any? Uh, yes. Threshold has operated what we call harm reduction housing for decades now. Uh, and it's actually the standard and best practice uh, that ensures that people who are on the road to recovery and who may still be using alcohol or drugs um, are supported to work on their recovery, to work toward sobriety as a goal. Uh, but we do not displace people because they have an alcohol or drug addiction. What about people who don't, what about people who are like, you know what, this is my life now. I just want a quiet, warm place where I won't freeze to death, where I can drink myself to oblivion. That's my life. I've made my peace with it. What about housing? I mean, that used to be the SRO's function, that your disability check bought you a place where you wouldn't freeze to death. It wasn't lovely, but you wouldn't die, you know, out on the street. What about those folks? Yeah, I mean, we need we need to have so many more SRO-like options in Chicago. We lost them, as I said earlier, uh, through decades of disinvestment and neglect uh, and gentrification. Well, they were no fun uh, to yeah, live we, near. I mean, I've lived near them. They were they were not pleasant to live near because there are many challenges and thresholds and thresholds uh, purchased or uh, was the. Uh, lucky recipient <laughs> of uh, the Diplomat Hotel. Oh, boy. Remember? Oh, yeah. Uh, and and we turned that about 10 years ago into one of the best, still SROs, but really um, apartment buildings, uh, small uh, studio apartments for 50 people uh, who get the services and support that they want and they need. And and it's still there. So we transformed a very sad, dilapidated building that was not well managed into a place 
uh, a beautiful home for 50 people with mental health and substance use challenges, with the alderman support, with the city's support, with the community support, and it's thriving and the people are thriving. Do you know so if New York like City, do you, do you know if New York City offers that? Because my personal feeling is that, that there needs to be a lot of that and a lot of um, community um services supplied inside the building so that people who are walking about their business don't literally get thrown up on on their, you know, as they move about the city. Um, people certainly need need a quiet place to function in whatever way they function, in my opinion. But there also has yeah. to be some management and care so that the way that they function doesn't make it impossible for other people to, to manage. Is New yeah, York I mean, doing I, anything like that? Do you happen to know? I hope so. I, I just don't have enough knowledge, but you could see the places that thresholds run and how beautiful they are, both inside and out, you know, for those kinds of buildings where we have 24-7 coverage and uh, lots of on-staff support, it makes a big difference. But, but in general, most people with mental health challenges that are living in the community will benefit from what we call community support and outreach. So what's a really cool part of our method, Tori, is that, as I said, we go to where people are at. We have teams of outreach workers and case management, even nurses and psychiatrists that will support people in the community. Um, well, I think I think we're going to I think we're going to have to leave it there, Mark, um, because I think that it's clear that there's a lot more of just about everything needed. And it'll be interesting to see how Chicago navigates this next challenge of of its homeless population throughout the winter. I really appreciate your time. That's Mark Ishag. He is the CEO of Thresholds and our nonprofit. They provide outreach, as you just heard, to um, Chicago's homeless, mentally ill incapacitated, addicted. They, they do a lot. And do we need a cleanup operation? Do we need an intervention? We'll be talking more about this, I'm sure, as time goes by. Patty Vasquez is next. Uh, this has been the Joan Esposito Show. Thank you so much for hanging with me, even though I'm not Joan. And I'm not sure when we'll get together again, but Joan will be back Monday. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Julia Shu, And of course, to the great Lady B.